You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, Evangelical. You've accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, been born again and washed in the blood. So now make sure you have your quiet time, go to Bible study, and witness. But while you're doing all those things, Evangelical, just know that there's this doctrine of the Trinity over here in the corner. It's really old and really valuable, and if you break it, you're in trouble. So better not get too close and stick to the practical things. If that's your experience of Christianity, Evangelical, has Fred Sanders got good news for you? The best news, the gospel. Because that trinity you tiptoe around in awe is the greatest treasure you could ever know, and you're already inside of it. It is the depth beneath all the Christian things you already know and do. It is the deep things of God. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this Christian Humanist Profiles, and today I have the pleasure of conversation with Dr. Fred Sanders, professor in Biola University's Tory Honors Institute and author of The Deep Things of God, How the Trinity Changes Everything, published by Crossway. Welcome back to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Sanders. Thanks, glad to be here again. Well, you've written, by my count, three books on the Trinity, and yeah. my guess is that you're not done yet. Um, I'm sure that you've told this story many times in many venues, but I don't think I've ever heard it. What set, down, what set you down this path? What first sparked your interest in the Trinity? Yeah, you're right. Three is probably about the right number, and when my <laughs> wife... <laughs> but, but I'm not done yet, so it wasn't like I was going for a Trinity trilogy. Um, yeah, we are in a situation where when my wife asked me, what are you working on, I can no longer just say the Trinity book, because that's been the answer for 15 years or so. Um, yeah, you know, your, your introduction really, I think, kind of uh, resonates or rings some bells with my own experience of how I got started on this interest or obsession with the uh, doctrine of the Trinity. I, um, I had a Christian upbringing, but sort of walked away from it and, and got saved, I think, in high school sometime in a Methodist youth group revival that broke out. And I started reading the Bible for myself. And um, I, I have a pretty clear memory of exactly when and where it happened that I was reading Ephesians 1 and kind of trying to put the big picture together. I knew I knew all the bits and pieces and parts of, of what it was to be a Christian. I was, you know, involved in a very exciting evangelical uh, revival kind of a situation. But somehow reading the big, the big story that Ephesians 1 lays out, blessed be God who has blessed us in the heavenly places with all spiritual things, you know, chosen us in the beloved and sealed us with the Spirit. As I put all that together, I could kind of feel it forming or, or gelling in my mind that, these things which were just disparate data points before were all part of one big uh, uh, plan of salvation that that flowed in, that flowed directly out of the one big threefold reality of God. Um, uh, to be honest, when it sort of came together in my mind, I, I didn't have at hand traditional language for it. I, you know, I'd heard of the Trinity. I had already read by that time. I think J.I. Packer's Knowing God and C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I can't claim I was totally uninstructed on these matters. Um, but somehow when it all came together in my own mind, just straight from Scripture, I had the feeling I had maybe invented a heresy or some strange <laughs> new thing. You know, some, some 
awesome, exciting new thing that no one else had ever thought of before, and now I was going to have to start a cult or something like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so anyway, the, the result is, it's kind of a Chestertonian remark, but I have the pride of ownership and having invented the doctrine of the Trinity myself. Um, <laughs> and also the good news of finding out, oh, I, I did invent it myself, given biblical resources, um, but I was literally reinventing the wheel or the triangle when I did that. Uh, it was... It's the big open secret of mainstream Christianity, you know, that that the the God we serve is the triune God, that it's all part of one big plan, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit working out our salvation. Hmm. Yeah. Excellent. So you got off the boat, and there you were in England. (laughs) That was it. That was it. And then, of course, from there, you know, as my vocation developed, and I thought, oh, I will pursue an academic theological vocation once Mm -hmm. I found out there was such a thing as academic theology. Mm -hmm. Um then you know then i made the appropriate transitions and moves to kind of uh, pursue that love and that vision in a in a academic setting excellent this is a, actually a book that was first published in 2010 if i can remember correctly yeah that's right that was the first edition yeah so this is the second edition what have you uh, what have you done differently in this edition what what chances have you had to rethink or maybe try out the material from the first edition. Yeah, well, it is it is substantially the same book. I I even resisted the urge to correct anything, uh, except for a few um, you know typos. I had about a dozen typos that I'd been wanting to get to, and um, I might have tweaked a couple of minor factual statements that I wanted to nuance or say a little better. But it, it's the same book. So mm-hmm. if you've already got deep things of God on your shelf, you don't need to set it aside and rush out and buy the second edition to, to see how my mind has changed or anything like that. <laughs> um, what, I, <laughs> what I did was basically retool the book for church use. Mm. Um, Deep Things of God in the last seven years has done surprisingly well, both in the academy where it gets used in all kinds of introductory classes, in the Doctrine of God and the Doctrine of Salvation, even in the Introduction to Theology. Um, hmm. I'm just really gratified that professors are finding it useful uh, at the undergrad level, at the graduate level. Um, so some of the things I tried in there apparently really are working for theological education. It's also done really well in churches uh, where small groups will get together and discuss it or pastors will write to me and say that, you know, whether they quoted me or not, their whole approach to teaching the Trinity was shaped by the, the kind of arguments I made in the book. But on that church front, um, I, I got some recurring complaints from people, and I finally began listening to them. <laughs> um, one of the complaints was that one of the things that blocked its usefulness in churches was the chapters were too long. Mm. Now, I thought this was a strange sort of a complaint, and the first 99 times I heard it, my response was basically some polite version of, toughen up and read a long chapter. You know, it's, it's one big idea. You should... Pursue the chapter, or alternately, set the book down when you're mentally tired. You, you don't have to finish a chapter. You can come back to it. Um, but about the hundredth time a perfectly reasonable, intelligent person complained about the long chapters, I thought, now just possibly they're right and I'm wrong. Uh, and so, yeah. so following that hunch, uh, I, I reexamined the longer chapters and thought, you know, there's no reason I couldn't just chop them in half, give it a new chapter heading, and expand this from, I think, a nine-chapter book to a 14-chapter book just by breaking the longer ones in half. Mm-hmm. So 
fairly superficial, but apparently something that um, really was being an obstacle to people who otherwise wanted to read the book. Mm-hmm. The other thing I did, of course, and this is the main difference in retooling it for church use, is I produced a study guide, uh, which appears in the uh, back part of the second edition. And this is a road-tested study guide. I, I wrote it myself, and I used it over the course of several years in a number of different churches. So it's got what I think are must be about 100 really good discussion questions in there. Mm. And when I say really good ones, I mean, I think anyone who's taught in churches has had the experience of asking a really clunker of a question oh, and yeah. having, whole, <laughs> having the whole small group kind of look at you like, so that's the game we're playing, huh? You, you <laughs> pretend... You pretend to ask that question, and we pretend to answer it. <laughs> um, you know, those questions just come out of small group leaders sometimes. It's, it's, it's natural. It's understandable. But I've already been burned by all of those, uh, by asking them. And uh, I hope I've eliminated all of them and put in place the questions that I actually used helpfully in small group discussions in churches. There's also a glossary. Um, some recommended reading and, and a few other sort of bells and whistles like that that I think will make it more useful for individual study and for small group study in a church setting. I poked around in the study guide at the end, and I'm 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 uh, excited to I, I hope to get a chance to to use it in that in that area. And and I was interested to learn that you taught Sinclair Ferguson how to snap a banana in half through the peel. Yeah, yeah. There's some little um, fun extra bits in there. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dr. Ferguson and I were um, backstage at some speaking event uh, we were at, and uh, there were bananas, and I, I had just learned how to snap one in half, and I was kind of amazed by this. And he, had, I mentioned it to him, and he had never heard of it. So I, yeah, that's probably going on my gravestone, you know. Yeah, the, uh, you know, <laughs> bucket list. Bucket list. <laughs> Teach Sinclair Ferguson how to snap a banana through the peel. Yeah. Well, you know, only one person can have that on their bucket list. That's true. I mean, unless he was being, you know, polite and pretending he didn't know. (laughs) Well, this book is not only an exercise in uh, Trinitarian theology uh, for lay people or in academic settings. It's it's also a call for evangelical renewal. That's something I remember surprising me the first time I read it um, back when it came out the first time. So what has gone wrong, as you see it, in evangelicalism that you think a re-engagement in the Trinity will remedy? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and it certainly does, the, the pitch of the book is, you know, it's for evangelicals. Other people can overhear it, and I think people have enjoyed overhearing the discussion uh, mm-hmm. outside the evangelical circles. But um, here, here's what I think I was trying to tap into. Um, at that time, uh, about seven years ago, I, I seemed like everywhere I looked and everywhere I listened, I heard a lot of evangelicals are so lame, what's wrong with us kind of self-talk. It really is a strange you know, community or coalition or whatever you want to call evangelicalism. Um, uh, it's it sort of hooked on self-criticism. Mm. Um, you know, and... and uh, not not always just for the sake of let's let's make sure we're getting better and better all the time, but there actually can be kind of a dysfunction where we just love lambasting ourselves or secretly others by claiming to be lambasting ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. When I say evangelicals are such losers, I don't mean me, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. talking about you, but I'm putting myself in there to make it sound like I'm 
repenting of something, when in fact I'm just yelling at people I think should shape up. Um, so as I was writing the book, I decided not to indulge in much of that kind of rhetoric. In fact, to go to the other side and, and run the risk of, instead of being a prophetic voice uh, who alone has the words of truth and is calling people to just come to see things my way and buy my Trinity product, um, I wanted to instead almost err on the side of being too much of a cheerleader, of really saying, you know, we're not perfect, but we've actually got this thing if we would just attend to it the right way. Mm. So it really is um, an attend to it kind of an action point over and over. One of the things in the study guide is action points. And I have to admit right up front, look, this is mainly an indoor sport. And most of my action points have to do with opening your eyes um, to, to what you have. So having said all that, there is, of course, as you mentioned in the introduction uh, to this podcast, a, a, um, a felt sense within evangelical experience of sort of the threat of shallowness um, that, that when you really sort of dig down to look at what it is to be a Christian, sometimes you get this scary feeling that there's no there there, mm. that it was all about this conversion experience that already happened in your past. So what is there to do now between that conversion and your upcoming death, however many <laughs> decades away that may be. <laughs> um, right. And uh, so that's one side of the evangelical experience. But as I read widely in evangelical sources, I think, no, there's a, there's a clear awareness that salvation is participation in the life of God and that we are taken up into a Trinitarian reality that is not just something God happened to put in place to get us out of hell, but is actually a, a, a major... Uh, profound Trinitarian soteriology, that this is all about knowing God in the community of believers. Mm. So just trying to direct people to those deep sources that are right there under our feet. Why do you turn evangelicals mainly to their own traditions' voices when you do this? Shouldn't we be mainlining Gregory Nazianzus or Maximus the Confessor or something like that? Why, why Nikki Cruz and the Fundamentals? Which yeah, would be a yeah great, that's a good question. Which would be a great band name, by the way. <laughs> yeah, Nikki Cruz and the Fundamentals. That'd be nice. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so there are a couple of things going on there. One is um, my awareness of the fact that these sources really are present and rich, and that anywhere you scratch in evangelicalism, uh, it doesn't take much scratching to get down to something Trinitarian. I mean, there are underprepared and underinformed teachers out there who you could scratch all day and not get to much. Um, <laughs> but I'm saying that the, there are there is such a thing as deep sources of evangelicalism. I really didn't want to um, take people's attention away from their actual church and their actual biography and their actual experiences and spiritual history and point them away to some uh, distant land that has to come to us only through translation. Uh, from other sources, I thought, no, our, we can we can grow our own uh, our, our own resources right here on our own territory. Mm. Um, one of the things was also just as a writing challenge. One of the exercises that I sort of set myself for the writing of this book uh, was to limit the color palette that I was painting with. You know, if you think about mm. Picasso, Picasso's blue period, he, he obviously was master of a range of colors, but he goes through this period where it's just blue and modulations of blue, and he's painting all of his figures, and and you think, how long is he going to keep at this? But then you look at about your you know 25th blue Picasso painting from that phase, and you think, 
man, there's a lot in blue, isn't there? <laughs> As he uses <laughs> black and white to bring out all the different shades and modulations and hues that you can do within the blue spectrum, mm. it really is. Why would you ever need anything else? Um, so I sort of tied one hand behind my back and decided, to the best of my ability, I'm not going to quote anyone from the first three quarters of Christian history. Mm. I'm, I'm going to stick to evangelicals broadly defined, or at least protestants broadly defined um now i cheated a few times you know there's no replacing chesterton there's there's not another irenaeus you can go to there are a handful of times where i really needed the resources uh, i needed explicitly to appeal to the resources of the early church or the medieval church mm -hmm. um or a modern roman catholic like chesterton uh but for the most part i wanted people to come away from the book really with a whole reading list of protestant evangelicals they probably ought to look up because they've got the stuff Excellent. I, I got a sort of bare, bare testimony, a very evangelical sort of thing to do. The first edition of this book hit me at a point in which I, as as a Christian with an evangelical background, was feeling a patrimony envy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> about the other about the other traditions, and um, I wasn't necessarily. Um, thinking of thinking of switching but um you know geneva and rome and uh greece and it seemed like everywhere else you know had really really good stuff and and uh this book um along with the trinity stuff sort of taught me a lesson in i guess evangelical filial piety <laughs> yeah so, yeah um which I don't know. I, I, I think that might be something that our tradition could could bear to value a bit more. That we get to our grandfathers through our fathers. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think that's important. There's something um, there's something perverse about claiming to be traditional by wiping out everything in your actual experience tradition. Mm. Right. Now, if you're if you're grow up in a cult or something, and your actual experience <laughs> tradition is it's a wasteland. Um, you know, truth trumps everything, and <laughs> so you, you you've got to follow the truth claims. Right. Um, but I'm afraid we're, we're more like we're more in the abstracted situation of loving mankind but hating people, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, really venerating tradition as long as it's somebody else's tradition somewhere else. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I was trying not to try trying to unlearn that that tendency of. Uh, feeling like you have to just chopper lift yourself out of where you actually are to get back to things. Right. It might be kind of a, I don't want to go all Wendell Berry or anything, but it might be a kind of a localist impulse too, mm. you know, to say, don't, don't hanker after the hazy beauty of something far off. You, you actually need to look around you and uh, see what here deserves to be the center of its own attention. Excellent. Well, I appreciated that. Well, in your second chapter, you launch into a discourse on tacit knowledge, which I, I don't know that when I switch, when you flip back to the study guide, uh, mm. it, it seems like that chapter sort of loses people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But what what is this escort, this excursus on tacit knowledge got to do with evangelicals and the Trinity and apparently Palm Olive? Yeah, Paul Mollif. I don't think I actually invoked that name of power, did I? Um, uh, well, you 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 made the you're soaking in it reference. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, you're soaking in it already. Um, well, so that's my key point. Is I um, 
I'm confident <laughs> that uh, lots of people, uh, myself included, can teach the doctrine of the Trinity as a series of propositional truths uh, de- demonstrable from Scripture and can persuade a, a reasonable Bible believer into accepting and affirming the doctrine of the Trinity on those grounds. What, what that often feels like pedagogically for the learner is that a construction is taking place in their mind, um, and at, at the end of that, they will assent to a truth. And then, of course, that, that's fine. You know, I've done that before. But it inevitably raises the question, and then why does it matter? Hmm. And I'm always kind of gobsmacked by the question, why does the doctrine of the Trinity matter? Because I think, well, maybe, maybe if that question arises, possibly you learned it wrong. Like mm. maybe if you learned it as a kind of calculus, uh, then you could ask, when is this ever going to come in handy? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess calculus is a bad example because that's super handy, isn't it? Um, <laughs> anyway, um, uh, my my approach instead was to try to uh, educe or evoke the uh, Trinitarian commitments and realities that are already always surrounding anyone who is a Bible reading. Um, uh, born-again, praying Christian in a Christian community. That person is already uh, in contact with Trinitarian realities and Trinitarian ideas and commitments over and over. So it's that crucial ability to say to a group, you know, and then point to something in their available experience. Mm. Some of that comes from, some of that flexibility in that regard comes from uh, the fact that I've been able to teach in lots of different kinds of churches, um, lots of different kinds of evangelical Protestant churches, and I have to get the lay of the land where I am. So, you know, does this church have a doctrinal statement? What kind of hymns or praise choruses does this church sing? Um, what's the structure of this church's worship service like? Uh, what sorts of things do they hear in the sermon? What, what you know, how do they apprehend Scripture? Um, once I know that, I know which things I can appeal to, and I'll just ignore the other things, right? So... If maybe they're mostly doing topical sermons and maybe haven't crashed into the Trinity very much, uh, but they sing Charles Wesley hymns, okay, golden, I'll appeal to the Charles Wesley hymns. Um, If they sing less theologically thick praise choruses, but they preach expositionally through through books of Scripture, okay, then I can appeal to the large overall structures of Scripture, but maybe not to the things they sing. Mm. Um, Yeah, so... To put all that in terms of tacit knowledge and to invoke uh, Michael Polanyi and and do that kind of stuff, that was a self-conscious decision on my part to, 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 my judgment was that the audience I envisioned would want to hear about tacit knowledge and Michael Polanyi. In other words, I could have taught all that without doing that, you know, without invoking those names or those touch points. But I thought, I think the reader I'm talking to wants to be self-conscious of the fact that they are learning new things. Hmm. You know, so Polanyi is kind of fun to think about, and this will be one of the names that you learn from scratch, and I'll kind of talk you through it. I I have considered writing another kind of book that's even easier than Deep Things of God, um, that does kind of the same move, but without some of that kind of methodological paraphernalia. Mm -hmm. One of the things I constantly come back to is the mystery of evangelism that you you say a handful of words, propositions, and statements to somebody. They hear the gospel and respond and are born again, and they are immersed into a reality that is so much vaster and more comprehensive than the handful of words and ideas you just verbally communicated to them. Mm-hmm. And, and that, always, that always astonishes me. You know, you say, 
um, uh, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then all of a sudden, it turns out they're you know born again and immersed in the life of the Trinity. I think, wow, how, that's a disproportion. How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> so. well, it's not hard to fall into the ocean, but kind of hard yeah. to swim to the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well. A Christian convert begins with the knowledge and experience of the gospel, like you're saying, and then usually grows towards understanding of doctrines like the Trinity. That's that's the usual trajectory that we're on. But the heart of this book, kind of the middle eight chapters or so, is a deliberate systematic reversal of the trajectory. And starting instead of starting with us and moving up, you begin with the Trinity and work down. So why is this a move that evangelicals need to make? What's wrong with focusing on what's relevant to our personal experience and ways that we've kind of already talked about? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, the The problem that comes from focusing on our experiences uh, in themselves is, uh, you know, the, the Son of God uh, leaves the throne of heaven and humbles himself to become a servant and, and to... Uh, fix what is wrong with us and bring us into this great life. If you start from that little X on the map that says you are here and you think outward from that central point, it can come to seem like everything in the whole history of the world is for you and about you. And and if you keep thinking along those lines, you can think, and it seems like God himself is just for me in a deep and absolute sense. I, I don't mean that he's in favor of me. I mean, like, he exists to answer the question, how can I be saved, or something like that. Mm. Uh, it's, a weird, it's a weird optical illusion or um, you know, parallax error where uh, objects in the mirror of salvation seem closer than they are or something like that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so while it makes perfect sense to find yourself on the map, you know, when you're lost and, and then you come upon a big map, the little X that says you are here is the most important piece of information. You know, it doesn't matter to know the lay of the land if you don't know where you are in it. You're still lost. Um, so I totally get the legitimate self-centeredness of being able to own and locate, you know, own your experience and locate where you are on the map. But what I really try to do, uh, what, what I think is really healthful and, and life-giving, is to reorient that uh, towards the big picture to to um, – I really – I think I spend – is it two chapters on the, the idea of – God in himself, and, mm-hmm. and the fact that one of the things the doctrine of the Trinity brings to us is this revelation of who God is in himself. If there had never been our salvation, you know, we've got our Trinitarian salvation, but if that had never occurred, God would still be the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, if, if there had never been creation, if there was never anything but God, the eternal God, the character of God's life would be to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So it kind of puts us in our place. Yeah. Let's talk for a little bit about Trinity analogies. Um, what's wrong with them? Why, why don't we just sort of relish the analogies for the conceptual aid that they give? Why, why reject them the way that you kind of famously do? You're sort of a Twitter uh, curmudgeon about the Trinity analogies. <laughs> um, yeah. What does the economy of salvation do? that a shamrock can't. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I always wanted to be a, a Twitter curmudgeon. So <laughs> before I even knew there was Twitter, before there was Twitter, I, yeah, I was predestined to that calling. Um, I, um, so first of all, I'm, I'm a big fan of analogical thinking. I love illustrations. Um, as a public speaker, almost to a fault, I, I prefer illustrations. I, mm. I frequently find myself five minutes down the road of brilliantly illustrating something, a point that I have not yet stated. (laughs) (laughs) So half the audience is right there with me, like, yeah, what a great illustration. And half the audience is scratching their heads saying, why won't he say what he's talking about before he illustrates it? So (laughs) I I like vivid language. I love memorable or sticky ideas. Um, I think the, the mind functions, you know, works towards understanding always by analogy and things like that. So this is not an absolute ban on analogies. Um, what, what I am against is um, the idea that the, one of the big tasks in Trinitarian theology is coming up with a good answer to the question, what is that like? Because mm. um, So I'm all about climbing you know, little analogical rungs on a ladder of understanding. That's great. Um, but the idea that you get to the top and there's some kind of package deal where, let me tell you what, the triune God is like, and then you do something like shamrock or three phases of water or something like that, whatever you do. Um, I just think there are lots of things about God where in addition to getting little boosts from an analogy, the main insight you get to is there is nothing like God in this regard. Hmm. So one illustration I use is if I teach that God is the creator of heaven and earth and made all things from nothing. And then you ask me, what's that like? <laughs> well, there I think people kind of have their wits about them, and I can say, well, the main thing I want to say is it's not like anything. There is there is nothing else that I can point to that is like the one God making all things out of nothing. Mm. Uh, the whole point is this is a singular uh, uh, instance. I can't like describe the making of all things from nothing and give you two examples. Mm. <laughs> there's there's one example. It's the thing we're all in. Um, on the other hand, I can't give you an analogy. Like just this morning, I, uh, made myself a a fried egg sandwich. And so that's a little bit like it, you know, (laughs) it used to not be a fried egg sandwich. Then I took action based on my choice of, of what I thought were the proper ends. And, uh, then I made a sandwich and where a sandwich had not been before there was one. Mm. So it's a little bit like that. Now, when I teach that in the Doctrine of Creation, people say, oh, yeah, I get that. It's totally not like that, but that's helpful to kind of get a glimpse of it. Mm-hmm. If I could be absolutely confident that that's what was going on with people when they asked about Trinity analogies, I'd be a little more sanguine about throwing them around all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm, I, I, don't, I don't have confidence that, that folks have their wits about them when they ask for an analogy for the Trinity. In fact, I think what's going on is as we talked about earlier, the reason I take the Paul Mollov brand, you're soaking in it approach, is I think if I construct the doctrine of the Trinity in your mind by arguing from particular propositions in Scripture and piecing them together, I think you'll nod your head and say, yep, I see how that proof works. You know, you have, if those angles are uh, congruent, then those angles over there must be congruent. QED, you have demonstrated the truth of the doctrine of the Trinity to me. Now, the important matter. What's that like, and why does it matter? <laughs> I just feel like when you get to the 
when you get to the end of the Trinity instruction exercise and the burning question is, what's that like and why does it matter? I think you've already lost the game. (laughs) (laughs) I think you need to go back and already have found a better way of teaching it so that uh, there's not a whole second phase of how to apply this abstract information. Mm. Yeah, That's what I think is mostly going on when people ask about an analogy. So that the analogies are almost all focused, are, are pretty much all focused on what is the Trinity versus who is the Trinity? Um, yeah, yeah, that might be it. Because by saying who is the Trinity, you're sort of pointing to the, the you know, the, the singularity, the particularity of this God, mm-hmm. you know, the, the God, this one. Um, yeah. Uh, a few months ago, I taught a men's retreat for a local church, and I think I gave maybe three or four lessons on the doctrine of the Trinity, kind of based on the deep things of God. And we had lively question and answer times and good discussion. And it was at the very end of it, I realized, nobody asked, can you give me a good analogy for the Trinity? Yeah. Or or more likely, the way that happens in Q&A in a church setting is, here's a good analogy, tell me what you think about it. Like mainly the performance that people want is they want to be the ones explaining the analogy. They're not so much asking you to give one. They've got an idea and they kind of want it. They want to have the experience of describing it and kind of have that vindicated or something. Mm-hmm. Anyway, at the end of this whole retreat, nobody asked that. Uh, that was not the question that people had or felt a need to, to interact with. And I thought, hey, I think it's taken me years to get the teaching to work <laughs> this way. <laughs> but I think that goes in the success column. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could be wrong. It could be that I taught something so opaque and nobody even had that question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, well, one of the themes that themes that you keep returning to, especially kind of in the heart of that middle section of the book, is that the gospel itself and the economy of salvation is really the only proper image that we can turn to um, for for who the Trinity is and who the persons are um, in relationship to one another, which is really the important thing, not how threeness and oneness can be in that abstract conceptual kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think that's right. I just I'd say amen to that. Um. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's, that's, that's your, uh, Sorry, I don't want to steal your thunder. That's 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 like that's been your thunder for, you know, <laughs> uh, I think all, I think each of your Trinity books. That's the thunder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the basic. I sometimes put this in terms of Trinity salesmanship. You know, if you're if you're selling a product, if if you're trying to bring about change in a in an audience, um, you, you can talk about the the first task is convincing the audience that they don't need much convincing. Mm. That is to appeal to a common value that they already know they value. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, in a sales context, this could be trying to upsell you to a car that you don't, in fact, need. And so that's where the, where the analogy would be limited. Um, but if you've really got something that that would really help the person you're talking to, but they don't care about it yet, or they don't think they care about it yet, or they haven't seen why they should care about it, mm. um, then what you got to find is a common value. And so for my evangelical audience, it's the gospel. If I can make the if I can make the associative argument that gospel and Trinity absolutely go together, um, then then I've got them right. They already love the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sometimes 
sometimes evangelicals will ask this question, though, do you have to believe in the Trinity to be saved? Um, and, you know, the, the way that question is put, I've got answers for it, I've got things I want to say about it, but but I know it's it's right on the borderland of perceiving that gospel and Trinity go together. Mm-hmm. And so if I can answer that question in a way that doesn't just sort of populate the question some people have in their mind of what's the least I need to know to go to heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead can be a window into the fact that, yeah, the gospel of salvation you're asking about and concerned about is a natural fit with, uh, you know, its natural habitat is the doctrine of the triune God, which is the teaching of who the God of the gospel is. Hmm. So it might not show up in the series of short 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 list of things i must believe to have saving faith but it is one of the it's it's not so much that do i have to believe in the trinity to be saved so much as it is i am saved in order to know the trinity right yeah yep and that salvation itself is uh, um uh an experience of the triunity of god uh, you know, made over to us in, in the actions of God for our salvation. Hmm. I'd like to dig into one of those. Okay. Uh, my my favorite chapter, not that the ones preceding were 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 not all of them awesome, um, but I I, I particularly um, appreciated when I first read it. Um, I think it's what's chapter six now. Um, Oh, no, no, no. Chapter 8. Behold what manner of love about adoption. And oh, yeah. You, yeah, and you, you quote J.I. Packer, uh, who's, uh, and the quote is, Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. And Packer's a big fan of justification. <laughs> right. <laughs> so why is being children of God the biggest gospel blessing? Because... Aren't we all that anyway? I mean, that's what the Here Comes Santa Claus song says. <laughs> and why would we need the Trinity to understand that? I mean, everybody's been a child. Everybody knows what parents are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. And, the, you know, the doctrine of adoption is uh, such a uh, crucial, central doctrine. Is it? I think Packer is also the one who said if you wanted to sum up New Testament theology in three words, it would be adoption through propitiation. Mm. Um, you know, which is just a great, there's so much amplitude in, in putting it that way. Um, yeah, so I would make a distinction between the way in which all humans are offspring of God and look to him as our, you know, progenitor and origin and source. And then, and we could use fatherhood language to describe that. There's a, the, a tiny shred of biblical warrant for talking about God being father of all humans. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the broad, main, clear line of biblical revelation is that salvation is going from a situation in which we are not children of God in this intimate sense um, to being brought into the family of God and being turned into children of God. You know, whether you say it the way Paul does with adoption as a legal kind of a category or the way John talks about it more organically as um, giving power or authority to become children of God, you know, to be, to be, um, uh, yeah, to be made into children of God. Um, so, you know, I think it's still worth 
talking to people about God as their father, but it really is, there's that creational sense in which, since God is our the source and origin of our being, we could sort of metaphorically talk about him as the father of all. Mm-hmm. But that's sort of like, it's more like he's, in that sense, he'd be like the baby daddy of all, or the progenitor of all, and not <laughs> the not the personal father, uh, you know, who who looks upon us and says, "This is my son in whom I am well pleased." Mm. Um, yeah. So you know, it is, I think that is a, uh, an instance where we can do a kind of a casual use of the language, or we can use the language. Uh, with an understanding of just the depth of its ingression into God's ways and even his being. Because hmm. that's that crucial link, right? It's, we don't erase the line between creator and creature. We don't, uh, we don't turn into God or anything like that. I'm, I'm never talking about that when I talk about participation in God's life. What I mean is, in the being of God, there is sonship. Hmm. And our salvation is a created participation in something that is in the being of God. God didn't, it's not that God's uh, off in the distance and for our salvation, he invents this thing called sonship and says, I'll bring those people into that. Mm. There's sonship in the father, son, spirit relation that is the life of the living God. Mm. And salvation is a a bringing into an appropriately uh, created participation in that eternal reality. So that we're I, one, carry on. Just one pe- pedagogical point on quoting Packer there. Yeah, he's big on uh, on uh, justification. Um, <laughs> when I'm when I'm trying to impress uh, a, a key point on on a listener, uh, when I'm trying to teach something in that way, I'm always trying to be alert to who are the usual suspects you would expect to say that kind of thing, and and is there a good reason to find a surprising spokesperson instead? So in this case, you might find someone who thinks, oh, justification by faith is overemphasized by those silly, you know, mainstream Protestants. We should we should instead avert our eyes and, and look over here at this great thing called adoption, because mm-hmm. it's time to, it's time to downplay justification by faith. Um, I, well, I don't want to quote someone who's going to have that kind of tone to it. So instead, I find, you know, ostensibly Mister Justification by Faith himself. You know, it'd be <laughs> like I should find Luther or somebody. But given my given the audience I was working with here, I thought. No Packer, that's who I want. Nobody, nobody's worried that J.I. Packer's going squishy on justification. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if he says, you know, the greater doctrine actually is adoption, the greater privilege, um, then then that'll count more. Mm. This was uh, this was really helpful to me in in thinking through the idea that when uh, in in that adoption we don't become sort of generic children of God um, as if this is mainly about God is a father who now takes care of us and we are little children that he now takes care of mm-hmm. but that there's a particular that, that, that there's a particular kind of relation that's in this adoption that is already visible to us in the relationship of of Jesus to the father yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I try to spell that out in a couple of ways um, in talking about what it what it means to participate in this sonship relation. Mm-hmm. I, I was just looking at Ephesians 5, which has uh, 5, 1, which has the statement, be imitators of God. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, man, what a statement, be imitators of God. That was 
as a blank slate, that can mean all kinds of weird things. Like, okay, so God is the absolute Lord of all things. Should I go around and <laughs> like in itself, that phrase be imitators of God can mean plenty of things. Um, but, but the context in Paul's theology, be imitators of God as beloved children. Mm. And you think, oh, that's the way in which imitation of God is a, a valuable part of the Christian ethic. And that, then, you know, when you put it that way and think of the actual context, it aligns perfectly with what Jesus says about, you know, your father and be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. He's always connecting it to God's fatherly care mm-hmm. uh, and the way in which as children we imitate that. Mm-hmm. This is, I, I have wondered this, um, whether... In more old-fashioned translations, uh, a lot of the texts that talk about Christians as children of God, adopted as as children, um, that the the word there is is son is ma- yeah. is the masculine son, and mm-hmm. in a lot of modern English translations, it get rend- it gets rendered children um, because Christians are not all boys, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, might it be clearer if that stayed son so that we would know that when we are being adopted, it is not as, as kind of like little children generically, but as, as, as sons like the son with the spirit of sonship. Yeah, there are a lot of places, especially in Paul's theology where, um, where son and, and the masculinity of that image, uh, that term is, is important. Um, Mm -hmm. Because even, you know, so my church is involved in a lot of adoption ministry and, and orphan care and foster care. And so often when we talk about adoption, you have this image of, uh, you know, a helpless baby that you're going to help. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and in Paul's mind, and of course, that's not even true of modern adoption because you could adopt a teenager, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> in which case uh, you're not dealing with the same kind of cuteness as adopting a newborn. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but especially in the... Greco-Roman world that Paul is, is speaking in and thinking of, and you can see this explicitly in his arguments, he, he's thinking of adoption as um, the, the adult male heir who will inherit things. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and in fact, who already stands in some kind of relationship of possession of the inheritance. Mm. Um, and so it's a, it's a strongly legal image that really only works in that culture for an adult male heir. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the legal term he uses, huiathesia, um, son-making, or being placed in the position of son. Uh, yeah, there are lots of places where the the gender-specific language of Scripture uh, is really helpful, even in me being able to say the Son of God, you know, the Eternal Son became the Incarnate Son so that we could become adopted and it's really helpful for me to be able to say son there. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm perfectly willing to go out of my way. It's crucially important for me to know that women listening to me understand that they are not excluded from sonship. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> that That's yeah. not the verbal place to make that point. Um, you know, I, I think just as I don't wince when someone says I'm participating in being the bride of Christ. I think mm-hmm. like, right, but I'm a boy bride. <laughs> like I'm a male, but I'm in this respect. Uh, yeah. Bride is the more helpful 
term to use. I should also say that there are places in the New Testament where the word, it's not huios, it's not son, it's um, tekna, or, you know, children. Mm. Um, and so it's a, you know, it's a verse by verse thing you have to check, but yeah. Paul really has a strong tendency to use the son language. Is that what John uses in his epistles? Uh, yeah, John uses tekna a lot, uh, little children. Okay. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I know that. I know, I know that's a tough one. Um, I'm I'm super sympathetic to the reasons why it gets rendered as children and not as sons, but there's something mm-hmm. glorious there that I think gets obscured. Um, this last Sunday, we were singing, and I know that this is you know has been the hotness for a few years. That that praise song, um, "Good Good Father." Oh yeah. And as I was singing it, um, there's there's part of me that's like, ah, uh, we're singing this song again. Um, but then because I was, I was reviewing, because I was reviewing your book, it hit me. The only reason why I can sing this song with these lyrics is because God, the son, God, the son sang it first and forever. Mm. Yeah. And, and that helped my attitude. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I could even even doing a charitable read of that song. I think when it's when it's working, like when it's not working, you're wondering why would you say it's who you are, it's who you are, it's who you are. That's kind of weird. Um, but but when it is working, mm-hmm. I think that threefold repetition can kind of invite you to think about the the levels of depth at which God is a good father. Mm-hmm. Like you could be thinking, yeah, you know, it's a beautiful Sunday morning and. Many things in my life are going so well right now, and I feel really blessed, and what a good father I have. And then maybe the next level is, yeah, but things aren't always going great, and God's still a good father. That's actually who he is, not just what he does. Mm-hmm. And then the next level beyond that, maybe the second or third time you say it's who you are, if it's working for you, you might actually find yourself thinking a Trinitarian thought. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, if I weren't here and I weren't singing God, who he is would still be a good father to the son. Mm-hmm. Who is yeah. loved? Who is loved by him, and that's who he is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, awesome. this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Awesome. Yeah. Well, you finish the book with two staples of evangelical piety: Bible reading and prayer. So, what is tacitly trinitarian about these exercises, and how can I my experience of them be enriched? By knowing that Trinitarian foundation, if we if I can take that tacit Trinitarianness and make it conscious Trinitarianness, yeah, yeah, and I think early in the book I mentioned that sort of feeling of emptiness you get when the the application point of every sermon is like read your Bible and pray. You know, you're yeah. you're having some dark <laughs> night of the soul kind of moment. You go to someone for help and counsel, and they say, you know what I think you should do? Read your Bible and pray. Oh. Um, <laughs> like why does that why does that feel so flat-footed empty and wrong when in fact we know it's right um mm. and and so just trying to kind of position position yourself there there are psychological answers like what what sort of situation might you be in that true things don't seem true or meaningful to you you know mm-hmm. there, there are things to talk about there but theologically um what i try to do with those two key practices uh, is show the Trinitarian depth behind each of them so that if you Mm. attend to what's going on, 
there's something deeper in those practices and, and more Trinitarian in those practices than we necessarily always attend to. I mean, I should say the first draft of the book um, had about six or seven practices that I was going to go off and explore. And mm. just as I was writing and I realized I needed to spend more time, you know, going a little slower and developing some of the preliminary materials, uh, those those things kind of got pushed off the end of the table. So I ended up really with like being saved, praying and reading your Bible you know, as the key practices that I was able to really unpack in this book. Um, for prayer, uh, this is one of my favorite chapters or, or, or sections of the teaching is to understand Christian prayer as always already Trinitarian, mm. whether you're thinking Trinitarian thoughts about it or not. Um, and one of the implications of that is, well, let me just say what that means is um, every time a Christian approaches God, we're not doing it on the basis of our right to approach God and fill his ear with chatter and make our needs known to him. Um, we, we all know that uh, Christians know that we are approaching God on the basis of being accepted in the beloved son, on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. You know, because of what he's done for us, we can pray as he taught us our father, you know, his father and my father. Mm. Um and every time we say the phrase, in Jesus' name, you know, uh, that's that's what we're signaling. Now, sometimes we're just using it as kind of the right way to conclude a letter, you know, like, you know, in Jesus' name, uh, <laughs> yours truly, sealed with a kiss. You know? um, but, but what, in fact, is happening is uh, we are logging on to the divine Internet with Jesus' password be because he told us we could. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I think I, somewhere in there I say Christians are people who talk to God as if they're his son or talk to God like they're Jesus or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so an implication of that is uh, the the actual structure of Christian prayer is to the Father, through the Son, and the power of the Spirit. And so the theologically correct way to pray that kind of aligns with the logic of the mediation in Christian prayer is to pray to the Father in the name of the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. That is mostly not to pray to God in general, mostly not to pray to Jesus, in fact, but the largest proportion of our prayer, kind of the natural flow of our prayer, to be prayer to the Father in the name of the Son. Hmm. Um, yeah, so that, that, I think, helps us understand and apprehend the Trinitarian structure of prayer better. I used to, you know, because I guess teach in churches, I'm really concerned not to commit uh, malpractice or, um, you know, a spiritual drive-by kind of situation, <laughs> cause a problem and then go away and leave it to the local uh, teachers to sort of sort out the whole mess. So because of that, my desire to teach safely, I used to really just emphasize, you know, you can pray. There's almost no way to pray wrong Trinitarianly. The Trinity should be an encouragement to prayer. You can pray to any person of the Trinity you want to. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Um, I still teach in that mode some, but I've increasingly seen that I need to emphasize what the Bible emphasizes, mm. and that is that you know the biblically correct form of prayer is to pray to the Father in the name of the Son. Mm. Um, and so, uh, when I started teaching that in evangelical churches, uh, a number of people came up afterwards and said, "I've never heard that anywhere except when I visit a Catholic church." <laughs> I thought, "Wow, that's a that's an interesting claim." 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe that's true. Um, <laughs> it is certainly uh, biblically correct, and and my main point is that it goes with the Trinitarian logic of mediation mm-hmm. that we would come to the Father through Jesus the Son. Do you ever get Do you ever get pushback on that? Um, I do, but I, I'm not I'm not teaching it exclusively. Uh, by which I mean I'm not saying stop praying to the Son, start praying to the Father. Okay. Um, <laughs> Um, I'm talking about getting the biblical proportions right ah. and and reflecting on the fact that Scripture gives us no example of a prayer to the Holy Spirit. Mm, yeah. Does that we're not allowed to pray to the Holy Spirit? No, you can pray to any person who's God. So you've got at least three options, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. I say at least three because I also want to leave room for a prayer where you just say, God, help me. Right. And you're not doing any Trinitarian theology in your mind at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not. It's not like that prayer misses uh, its address because you didn't, you know, do a trinitarian maneuver with it. Yes, a, fl- uh, a flare in the general direction <laughs> of up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's that's going to count as prayer to the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but nevertheless, even though the fact that there are no biblical instances of prayer to the Holy Spirit, uh, that doesn't mean we cannot pray to the Holy Spirit. But I think it does indicate. A sense of where our proportion ought to fall. Mm. You know, that, that broadly, uh, we have instruction in Scripture about how our prayer ought to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, it, it sort of reminds me of uh, uh, the book of Marjorie Kemp from Middle English, or mm-hmm. a, a scene where uh, she has a vision in which she's being married to the to the Blessed Trinity, and she's not excited about this because she mostly just likes Jesus <laughs> and he sits her down and says, Marjorie, honey, that's, that's not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder whether the, sometimes the, the very Jesus centered piety, which uh, of evangelicals, which isn't, nece- which is, which is, not a bad center that's a that's a that's that's the center where it ought to be um whether that might sometimes yield a resistance to to paying attention to the father but uh. yeah i i think that's right and um you know maybe it's i want to say it's not possible to be too christ-centered because christ is the center Mm -hmm. um but it is it is possible to let your christ-centeredness um lead you to the dysfunction of father forgetfulness or spirit ignoring mm, yeah um, and and so I think there are there are people who if you stopped them in the middle of their prayer or their Christian life and asked them the wrong set of Socratic questions in, in the wrong order you could get pretty <laughs> terrible answers out of them um, you know by which I mean you, you hear people say Jesus loved us so much he sent his son to die for us oh. you think uh, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure you don't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> the the, the um, inadvertent patripassianism during during yeah. during church prayers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, they, or they'll even think God so loved the world He gave His only Son, and and then in paraphrasing it, they'll say that's how much Jesus loved the world that He sent His Son, John three sixteen. Wow, that's okay. That's disordered. <laughs> um, I suspect you don't mean it, but there, you know you need to do some theological reflection there. Just about reading the the Bible better. Oof. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
well, on Christian humanist profiles, our guests get the last word. So mm. what do you want listeners to leave this conversation mulling over? Mm. Well, um, with regard to deep things of God, it's a, you know, um, it's done really well. I'm just delighted that Crossway agreed to bring out a second edition that's retooled for church use. Um, and I'm also well aware that it's a very peculiar book in that the most important thing about the doctrine of the Trinity is that it is the biblical revelation mm. of who the God of the gospel is. And I just don't do Bible work in this book. I, I presuppose it. Um, I, you know, I refer to places where you can find it. But I mostly don't set about to show people the doctrine of the Trinity from Scripture in any kind of well-ordered detail. Mm. You know, there are, there are deeply biblical passages in it. I spent some time in Ephesians 1. There, um, and the, the study guide does point out what kind of the guiding scriptural voices are for the various uh, chapters. Mm-hmm. But all that's just kind of uh, to, to indicate that, yeah, what this book is mainly doing is it's a motivational project, it's an explanatory catechetical project, uh, and it all is built on the presupposition that people are able to go to the Bible and find in it the revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity. Mm. Um, one of the reasons I did that is, you know, I was, I was trying to do a very particular thing, and I already have, like, 25 books on my shelf that do a fine job of constructing the doctrine of the Trinity from Scripture, I thought, well, I don't need to just rewrite a book that already exists. I want to do this particular thing that I see a need for. So in terms of final word, I would just want to say actually learning to uh, carry out personal Bible study and preaching and listening intelligently to preaching that discerns in Scripture itself the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, working out our salvation on the basis of who God eternally is. So it's it's finding the Trinity in the Bible that I think is the... Uh, it's going to be the lifeblood and kind of the regular ongoing food of, of uh, Christian experience of the Trinity. Mm. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Sanders. I've enjoyed this yeah. conversation. It's great to be here. Always glad to talk to you, David. Well, uh, dear listeners, that is all the time that we have for today. If you would like to leave uh, uh, feedback for this show, you can post it in the comments on the show notes on our blog, uh, the uh, christianhumanist.org. You can also send email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or post them on our Facebook wall. The interview today has been with Dr. Fred Sanders about his book, The Deep Things of God, How the Trinity Changes Everything. It's available from Crossway, and the link to that will be in the show notes when those post. Christian Humanist Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.